everybody. Welcome to Too Busy to Flush. I'm JR. And I'm Molly. And we are a happily married homeschool family of four kids, ages 10 through 3. And um, if this is your first time joining us, our conversations on on this show are never rehearsed and never uh, discussed between the two of us prior to... um, prior to our hitting record. They just grow like, out of what right. we're thinking about and doing on any given week. Yes, there is an, there are exceptions, but they truly are um, exceptions. So, as with everything else, you know, the last couple of shows, babe, I have not had the random thing or comment pop into my head right after I... Right it after kicks off the first, off. like, ten minutes of the show. So you're just sitting here waiting for inspiration to strike... Yeah, kind of. It's okay. super weird. You know, maybe I'm in a slump. Yeah, maybe I'm in a too busy to flush slump. I would say maybe you're not drinking enough coffee, but you're drinking most of the pot every morning. So I am, and it's delicious. That's not the problem. It's delicious, yeah. And when I'm home, I typically don't drink a ton of alcohol. And like last night, I had tea while I watched. The, I did watch The Great Wall last night with Matt Damon. Yeah? Yeah, it was fun. It's a monster movie. Is it a recent movie? In 2017. Okay. Yeah, it's one of those ones that kind of flopped huh was obscure. it was it just because it was a flop publicly did you like it i did enjoy it yeah um it was loud a lot of thumps and noise came through the floor while i was yeah. trying to sleep i have a subwoofer and it's called structural reverberation yep it's, it's right under hard, where it's right under our to, bed very hard to no actually it isn't it's right under the dining room well it feels right under our bed yeah, that's fair. Uh, um, Matt Damon is one of those people who's getting old, huh? Does he look old in the movie? No, I feel like he played the character really well. He, you know, it's like the medieval, pre-medieval time period. Um, and he fought with, you know, a bunch of stuff in Europe and everything else ends up in Asia. And he, he fit the role really, really well. And his co-star was the guy who does... Um, uh, not Boba Fett, but the bounty hunter, the Mandalorian. Uh, yeah, was his co-star, but it was a Chinese movie. Uh, oh. It was everything was Chinese. Huh. So, well, that's where the the movie market is. It right? was entertaining. I mean, I wouldn't say like I wouldn't go out of my way to watch it. Mm-hmm. Okay, speaking of actors getting old, that triggered something in my brain. Uh, ben Affleck was Matt Damon's co-star in Goodwill mm-hmm. Hunting, which was kind of both of their big breakthrough, right? Ben Affleck totally has a dad bod. Have you seen recent paparazzi pictures of him? Total dad bod. Also, you guys, celebrity sexual mores are such a mess. Good grief. You know, he's been Benefer with two different Jennifers, and now he's back to the original Benefer who left, what's his name, A-Rod. I just, oh, what a crazy world these people live in and they're poor kids i was glad to see recently i I don't follow pop culture very closely you guys at all but recently what's her name angelina jolie who is my age and looks like she's half my age no you don't think she does well i guess she's always struck me as like photoshopped and stuff she always to me she's always features She's somebody told me the other day she's asymmetrical and then listed off a whole bunch of other people who are asymmetrical. Because I said, well, if you're asymmetrical, then you would look funny. No, and this it's person's true. like, no, this person's asymmetrical. This person's asymmetrical. And I'm like, what? what? How do you know this? So, no, Angelina Jolie has always kind of struck me as like being perpetually 34. Yeah, that seems about right. Uh, who is her, <laughs> she was who is her dad? Like now I'm Googling this. Um, I can picture him in my head. Because. Yeah, so can I. But I can't think of his name because I'm terribly lit. These things. I just did Angelina Jolie, not Dad. That's why it didn't come up. On DuckDuckGo, you guys, not Google. John Voight. That's right. And she looks remarkably like him. But you know who she also looks remarkably like? Which... Her mom? No. her fir- Is it her first husband, Billy Bob Thornton? Oh, yeah. They kind of have the same buggy eyes and weird way of holding their mouths. <laughs> And they... It makes it interesting to kiss. Well... If you have buggy mouths. We have some friends who think that you have 
that people are inherently more or less attracted to people who look like they do. You don't and look anything like me. Feature, I mean, yeah, you're six four and I'm five four, but we have the same dark eyes, and you know, people are like, "You have your dad's eyes," and I'm like, "How can you tell?" Both parents have dark brown eyes. Oh, you definitely look like your mom's side of the family. Look at those dark brown eyes on your kids. It's just like your grandma or your dad's side of the family. I mean, I think by and large, that theory, I would agree with in some ways. Like I was talking oh, to Well, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. I don't, there are people that certainly marry people who look like each other, but. I mean, my brother once brought his girlfriend to our church. They lived out of town and people thought he was sitting next to me in church. It was creepy, you guys. His girlfriend looked so much like Molly. It was weird. Yeah. Um. Anyway. There's that theory where I had something else I was going to say. Oh, uh, speaking of other actors who are getting old, Macaulay Culkin, remember he turned 40 last year mm-hmm. and he had this Twitter thing that basically said, hey guys, want to feel old? This is my 40th birthday. <laughs> and all these people who've grown up with My Girl and Home Alone right. felt old and abashed. He's now a Gucci model. And he just, it's just weird. It's weird. But if you Google DuckDuckGo, Macaulay Culkin, Gucci, you get these really weird images of him being very Gucci. So this I is guess. our pop culture segment on right. Too Busy to Flush. The super rare. Super random and rare. And dating ourselves because I have absolutely nothing contemporary to say. I'm talking about Macaulay Culkin and when was my girl? <laughs> when did yes. that come out in Home Alone? Although Home Alone has such enduring... Uh, Lasting, whatever. Home Alone was pretty classic. I mean, that was, it was kind of one of the ones, the shows where the the two doofus, like even my kids, what did we watch the other day with, um, uh, Beethoven Beethoven with with the kids and, and, um, they had the two goof, two doofus henchmen. I mean, Beethoven is a, basically a riff off of 101 Dalmatians, but you know, instead of skinning them, they're going to kill the dog for money because they're testing new ammunition. I mean, it's like, but they're still oh, stealing is that really? dogs. I don't remember the premise yeah. of that. That's horrible. Oh, it was terrible. The kids are like mortified. Oh. And it was, and of all people, it was um, Dean Jones who played all of those iconic Walt Disney characters when I was growing up. He was the evil guy. So the kids didn't like him. The kids didn't like the bumbling, two bumbling henchmen. Uh, motif, which, which they're not supposed to necessarily. Yeah, I think the two bumbling henchmen. They motif loved is funny. the movie, though. They did. They, they were. They were just. Mom, can you believe it? We actually sat down and watched a whole movie. Yeah, you guys, our kids have so such sensitivity to visual plot tension. They they'll do fine in a book. We can read really intense, long, engaged Wing Feather Saga, Narnia. People can die, animals can die, and they can deal with it because they, as Harry Potter, as Titus, our 10-year-old, has said, he, he can control how graphic and how much he imagines the the imagery. And when images, I mean, it, in a sense, it's the same with pornography. When images are coming into your brain, they're not things that would naturally arise from your brain, and they can be jarring, and they can be sticky. And so... Things that come from external images can be disturbing in a lasting way that things that you think in your brain, even from a from a verbal description, are not. So our kids have always struggled with movies that have plot tension, which is literally every movie. Even the movie Cars was so stressful for our kids because he gets lost and he gets hurt and there's people who want bad things for him and so it's taken us a really long time to ease the kids into being able to watch something if we want to have a family movie night they're like can we watch mark rober who is great and i have no problem with mark (laughs) rober and i have no problem with short tv shows like lego ninjago or what other or competitive but even paw patrol yeah, well, no, actually, Faith doesn't like Paw Patrol now. No. But, but any feature-length movie with an actual plot, which involves plot tension before the resolution, makes them very nervous, to the point of being resistant to even having a family movie night. Uh, which, 
actually brings me to something that I wasn't planning to talk about today, but that I've been kind of cracking up at recently. And actually, it does. It does fold into what I do want to talk about today. Sort of. So there's a whole idea of a family movie night. A friend of mine was talking about their family movie night traditions, and I started feeling guilty because we have not ever successfully established a pattern of family movie nights because our kids won't watch a real movie. And we just don't really have consistency on our weekends or things like that. We have friends I know who do family movie night on Sunday nights. We have friends I know who do family movie nights on Friday nights. We, and we just, we have this going, you know, sporadically enough, but regularly enough on Friday night or on Sunday night that we haven't established that pattern. And I started feeling like we were somehow failing our kids until I realized what an absurd (laughs) expectation that is from our culture that somehow there's there's inherent value in a family movie night. Maybe because it has the word family in it. I was it, and just it's thinking the same thing. Like there's something uniquely distinctly American. Modern. Because I mean, think about think about what you what people always do on a date. Well, I'm gonna go on a date. What are you gonna do? Well, we're gonna go see a movie. Mm-hmm. And what do you do? You don't talk to each other right. during the there's movie. There's no interaction. There's no interaction. There's no getting to know you thing. And the same thing could be said for Spending time as a family movie night. Right. That kind of culture is uniquely... It only occurs here in America, I think. I don't think it occurs in Canada. I don't think it occurs over in Europe. It's just purely American. Definitely not Africa and Asia. Well, well, could it be with China being such a huge movie market? How do Chinese families consume their movies? Do they... I don't think there is such thing as a Chinese family. There is. China actually... (laughs) Here's an interesting thing. China, remember, China did away not too long ago with their one child policy and bumped it up to a two child policy. Mm -hmm. They're now actually allowing families to to get up to three children because they realize they're looking at an impending population crisis. They they're not they haven't been replacing, especially because they've done sex selective abortions and they have more men than women. They don't even have women to who are coming of age to have babies, and so they're bumping it up, which. I believe I saw this, where did I say it? Maybe it was a world news piece. I don't know, all you guys who listen to uh, the world and everything in it might know more about this than I do. But somewhere I saw recently that China is going to start allowing families to have three kids because of their impending population crisis, which, by the way, most of our listeners are really smart and savvy and know that America also is facing a population crisis. We do not... We are not reproducing at a rate to keep up our economy or our, what's the word I'm looking for? It's kind of a derogatory term in my brain, but our our monetary obligations governmentally for Social Security and things like that. There aren't going to be enough That's people probably a good thing. paying taxes. Probably tax- all needs to just well, go away. Well, no, I mean... It- Right, but we've created here's, a system. Because here's the thing. Ooh, here's here's a here's the thing, Molly. It's not a good thing because we're going to no, have so many elderly people. All of the people who are having kids are being raised in good Christian homes. Not so then all, all the other people are going to die out, and then we're going to have the beautiful kingdom. There is for America sure amongst. I'm feeling snarky today. Yeah, there. I mean, but that is for sure. I mean, even with um, our sort not not actually relative, but. Adri, you'll know who I'm talking about, who is a sister of a sister-in-law, has five kids and posted something on Facebook the other day about about having a lot of kids. And it's like, well, yeah, this is how we're changing culture. <laughs> Not only are we... But, okay, this really actually does go into what I've been almost obsessing over since Sunday. Not quite obsessing because I have too much going on in my life to really obsess about much. But but before I get into that, I'm going to say another thing that I borderline obsess over is healthy food and feeding our family well. I almost feel like now we have a sponsored and a commercial break before we get into the content of our podcast. So Except it's not sponsored. So, so my buddy actually said, he actually asked me the other day if we were talking about bringing on like sponsorships and it was a con I think it was in the context of me going out and looking for more work and uh and I said well I don't know you know it's like bringing on ads is kind of weird you've got to have like 
the minimum is kind of like 1500 downloads an episode and we're only at about seven to 800 and yada, yada, yada. And then I got to thinking, well, actually what I should do is reach out to the brands I already really like that we already promote and say, pay us and we'll formally mention you. <laughs> you don't even have to pay us that much. I, so that Ali Stuckey's podcast uh, that I listen to, not all the time, but enough that I've keyed into how her, her voice annoys me. That's fine. You don't like Valley Girl, Southern sort of nope. people. But the she, I think part of the reason her sponsorships are so effective is because she personally vouches for everything. If she's talking about an investment portfolio company, she and her husband use it. If she's talking about yeah. a meat, well, the best ones, company, the best ones are it. the best ones are the ones, and she probably goes out and pursues them. I mean, well, and she probably she used to probably at the beginning. Has a team that does at the now. beginning. Yeah. But now, you know, now she probably goes out and pursues them herself. Yeah. It's not hard to do. I just, I don't feel like. Okay, so. this is look at this as a money-making Rabid digression from where I was going. Maybe I should. You guys, I like to feed my family well. I like to avoid a lot of preservatives. I also like to be fairly frugal. The other day, it came into my brain to wonder if I could do homemade roast beef with a deer roast, the last deer roast from last season that's in that was in our freezer. So I thought it out and the key to making to me, one of the keys to making venison not taste gamey is to get as much blood out as you can. And so I let it thaw in a tub for a day and then I rinsed as much blood off of it as I could and then I salted it and then I let it sit in the tub overnight and that drew even more blood out and then I, had, I just found a recipe online for deli roast beef using beef, and I followed the recipe to a tea with the seasonings and how I roasted it in the oven, and then I cooled it, and then I used our friend's meat slicer to do deli-style slices of meat, and I gave my dad, who has been eating wild game for his entire life, a taste of it, and he said, I never would have known that was deer and not roast beef that you bought at a deli. It was so good, you guys. Our kids, I opened the tub, and the kids just grab a piece and eat it. I made a lettuce wrap with cheese and mustard the other day for lunch, and it was so good. And it, good quality lunch meat is so stinking expensive. <laughs> your dad, your dad actually goes, boy, that, 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 that roast deer that Molly, that roast beef that Molly's made was so good. We're gonna have to, we're gonna have to save out a couple roasts on our next elk. Just to do that. <laughs> Just to do You guys, it turned out so well. So I will have JR post the recipe for the roast beef because you can just buy a regular roast and she has roast types that she recommends i don't know what kind it just said whitetail roast on the package though so i don't know what type of roast it was typically when we cut roasts molly we pull them out of the hindquarters somewhere so i you can you can dive into all the different but it's a hindquarters and, and just, i wouldn't really even worry about anyway it. I, I think what i'm trying to say here is Maybe it doesn't really matter that much. Just get a chunk of red meat and try making your own because instead of paying five or six bucks for a tiny, it would take buying good quality lunch meat that then comes in tiny packages. It would take three packages just to make sandwiches for our whole family. And this made sandwiches for our whole family for several meals. And then I still froze enough for, I think, two more meals for our family. Yeah. So anyway, that I interrupt what I was going to say to With this advertising for a meat slicer. <laughs> <laughs> it did help. It's not it's not required to have a meat slicer, but it certainly helped for it to feel like store bought deli meat. Ty's, to have Ty's the, community meat slicer. Yes, that stays lives in our garage. Okay, so what did we leave off with before we started talking about sponsorships and roast beef? <laughs> Pop culture? Yes. Yes. Cultural expectations in raising our kids. Yep. Not everybody here has young kids, but a lot of you guys do. And a lot of you are interested in the future of our country and how kids are involved in that. And the the root of this thinking came from our church adult Sunday school class this semester is talking about cultural issues and despite my skepticism about how well they would pull this off, the guy who's teaching it has 
you guys, I can't even imagine how many hours he has spent researching each of these topics. Hours upon hours. And things like transgender identity. I have spent, <clears throat> since I started working with Canavox in 2016, hours upon hours watching videos, reading articles, participating in discussions, leading discussions, pretty much all of the cutting-edge medical articles as well as psychological articles I am at least aware of, if not reading and discussing. This is not an area where I'm usually... This sounds really vain. It's not an area where I'm really usually impressed with what other people have to say. No, it's fair. Especially lay people who don't specialize in this. So our Sunday school teacher is doing a fantastic job of understanding a lot of the issues at play. And he he had enough to say that he had to cut himself short and said he was going to finish the discussion the next week. And the question, he asked if there was any room for questions. And I, I threw a question out at him that I said, I hope that our session, which is the Presbyterian term for your elders. So our board of elders, I hope that you guys are creating a plan for when, not if, but when one of the children in our church starts pursuing a transgender identity because it's just a matter of time. And he took note of that and said it was a great question and I I expect him to to address it to a certain degree next week. But it really got me thinking what what I think the right answer there is. And what do I think families can and should be doing and churches can and should be doing and Long story short, if this sounds really pessimistic, I think there are things that you can and should do if a family in your church has a kid, say a fourth grade girl or a seventh grade boy who suddenly announces that they're the wrong gender and they're going to start living by the other gender. I think in some ways that the responses that you're going to be doing is like giving CPR to someone who's just been hit by a semi. You can and should give Mm -hmm. them emergency medical treatment, but, you know, let's go a little bit further. A kid who's been hit by a semi. Let's go low. So, So what you should have been doing as a parent and as teachers is training that kid not to walk close enough to the road that the kid's going to get hit by the semi. And to look carefully if they're crossing the street. So there's there's a lot of things that should have been done preventatively before the kid got flattened by the semi. Can and should you do triage and emergency treatment in the moment? Absolutely. Is it going to save that kid? I don't know, because sometimes even the best medical care can't save someone who's who's got that sort of trauma to them physically and to somebody who is announcing that they're pursuing a transgender identity you can't i'm not convinced honestly that you can always do emergency measures to a point that's going to help them in the moment and th- this gets worse before it gets better but i think it gets better so I started reading Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. My brain can take about three pages of that at a time. <laughs> My brain could take like maybe one a week. <laughs> oh, it's, you guys, it's, uh, it's brutal. It is so dense. And there's so much discussion of philosophical stuff. And it is so depressing because he dives into all of this history and he says we tend so to his his point essentially is we tend to look at where we're at right now as the snowballing effect of the sexual revolution and the way that's impacted our society and he says no 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 the sexual revolution was a symptom of massive ways massive cultural shifts that western culture was undergoing in terms of how we understand what a self is and what it means to be happy and fulfilled 
as a self that far predates the sexual revolution. And what's sobering is that we, and then this gets into, do you remember a couple years ago, James K.A. Smith's book? I'm holding it up now for JR to look at it. Have you thought about this book lately? Man, I haven't thought about that book lately at all. I have been thinking about it tremendously while I'm reading... Truman's book. I need to read it again. Looking at my underlines, I didn't read nearly as much of it as I think I did. (laughs) Actually, no, I have the underlines up to about page 85. She's talking about James K.A. Smith's You Are What You Love. You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit. Um, I haven't thought about this, how this all ties together quite as well as I would like. But, okay, so Truman, I have, and I will give JR this link to an article, an interview from Modern Reformation in March and April of 2021. Modern Reformation is a magazine. They interviewed him, and he essentially... I'll read the first question and answer. Although there's a lot packed into the rise and triumph of the modern self, and it's not short, could you provide a brief, brief thesis or synopsis? And this is what Truman says. It's a study of how conditions have emerged in our society that allow people to regard the statement, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, as coherent, and to see its positive affirmation as a political imperative. Having said that, I only really address transgenderism toward the end because my basic argument is that such changes are deep, wide, and long-standing, and we need to see the sexual revolution of which it is a part as one aspect of a much broader revolution of what it means to be a self and how human flourishing is understood. He goes on to say, Christians tend to think the sexual revolution is about behavior and then respond by reasserting Christian sexual mores. So think about a kid who shows up in church and says, I'm gay, and we say, no, you're not. You need to pray the gay away or we're going to, you know, even better responses than that. Or a boy who shows up in church and says, I'm a girl. Though statistically speaking, I didn't know this. The guy in Sunday school said it's some it's something between 60 to 70 percent of gender dysphoria in modern America is girl to boy transitions, which was interesting because I feel like male to female is in the news a lot because of biological males who want to participate in female sports. But it's more, and I, I have a lot of theories behind this, that it's, there's more females wanting to transition to male in our current culture, according to him. So anyway, you don't just say to someone, no, 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 you're a boy, God made you a boy. There's so much psychological infrastructure that's gone into that being a coherent statement that uh, he says you can't respond to the sexual revolution by reasserting Christian sexual mores. The sexual revolution is about identity. That certainly includes behavior, but it sees behavior as having greater significance for who people actually are. Christians need to grasp that in order to understand why phrases such as we hate the sin but love the sinner, seems so implausible in the secular world because they rest on a distinction between, say, homosexual desire and personal identity, a distinction that those outside of the church don't recognize. In other words, knowing the ba- this background helps how we publicly engage. Second, knowing the background helps us understand the depth of the problems we face. If the problems are now deeply embedded within the way people imagine society to be, then we can't solve them simply by an act of Congress or a Supreme Court appointment or, I would argue, simply teaching on the surface in the church and to our kids what what it means to um, to be a boy or a girl and to even to tell them, which is an approach that it, I guess this has got me thinking so much, not only because of our own kids, but because of the work that I do with Canavox. And we spend so much time warning people of the the dangers physically that transitioning, gender transition, causes to people. I mean, the drugs that they're using as puberty blockers are completely untested in kids. They're known to cause heart 
and bone and cancer issues in a, the adults on whom they have been tested. They even things that don't involve surgery, like girls will do breast binding. So you want to look like a boy, you wear something super tight. Well, that that impacts your skeletal development and your rib cage enough that girls who going through puberty do breast binding. It, it's kind of akin to the old Chinese foot or Japanese foot binding, where then you look at these. If you've never done a an image search on DuckDuckGo of adults with their foot binding who, who've had their feet bound, which has been outlawed now in a lot of Asian countries, but they're... Wouldn't they do it for like ballet and things? Uh, no, no, no. This is, <clears throat> it was actually considered attractive in, in Asian cultures for women to have small feet. And so they would, they would, and this is, Amy Carmichael was actually very instrumental in helping get rid of some of Ew, this. Don't oh, do an image search, you it's, guys. It's horrifying because bones, bones going to grow. And Ew. if they can't grow in the way they're intended to grow, they get extremely mangled and extremely painful. So the same happens, do a search of this, and then imagine being a young girl going through a growth a growth spurt and having a, you can buy chest binders that that are so tight that your boobs don't stick out but it also inhibits the growth of your rib cage and your bones are going to do the equivalent of this foot binding around your rib cage and you can't undo that you can't fix the damage that you do in that critical puberty time anyway so I tend to focus on that, but what Truman is saying here is there's this deep, deep worldview that he traces to this, he, he talks about all these really obscure people, and if you want an overview of the book, this Modern Reformation article is, is quite helpful, but he talks about uh, a bunch of philosophers, some better known like Marx and Freud, Darwin, some less known, like there's a guy named Rife. Uh, there's, I don't know. Anyway, lots of different people. And then he also believes that the romantic poets and writers, so Wordsworth, Blake's, Blake, Shelley, Oscar Wilde, were tremendously important in shaping the uh, imaginations and thus the morals of he refers to to artists and poets and writers as oh what's the word it's it's actually a really great word it's something about legislators they're unacknowledged legislators in how they create expectations poets and artists are uh but it's pretty depressing when you think that even you and I the cultural air that we breathe and that we've grown up in is so invested in personal identity and in self self defining of that personal identity and then particularly he points out how that self fulfillment and personal identity thanks to freud and people who've who've built on that is inextricably linked to our sexual identity and our sexual expression, such that I am being repressed and oppressed if I'm not able to be completely sexually liberated and completely sexually authentic in whatever way my internal self defines wanting my sexual identity to be. And so when you hear things like, not using someone's personal pronouns appropriately is actual violence to them. To someone who is very steeped in this worldview, that is a cohesive statement. How, but what Truman is basically saying is even though that doesn't, isn't totally cohesive to, it is not a cohesive statement to us, we have the seeds in our worldview because we're so steeped in this authentic self not being oppressed, the connection between identity and the political realm. He, he says, we have the seeds in that. And the whole time I'm reading this article and the beginning of the book, I'm thinking, 
kind of with horror about how do we raise our kids to not fall into the trap of the fruit of this acceleration of, remember, Obergefell was not that long ago. And here we are, you know, at the time of Obergefell, people were scoffing at people like Ryan Anderson, who were saying, we're going to, we're going to end up with all of this sexual deviancy that ratifying same-sex marriage is going to open the door to. And people mocked him up and down saying, no, 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 this is just love is love. This is just dignifying same-sex marriage in the same way that, you know, because that's, it's the same in the name of marriage equality. And yet here we are, what, five years later and seven years later, Obergefell was 2014. I can't remember. Somebody out there will know. Anyway, uh, just, I don't think anyone that's listening doesn't understand what I mean when I talk about the acceleration and the craziness. And the thing that, as I've been reading this stuff, I've just been wrestling with tremendously is, what do we do about our kids? Because, going back to my opening statement, trying to tell a kid who walks into church or walks into a family one day and says, I'm a boy trapped in a girl's body is like doing CPR on a kid who's been hit by a semi. We can and should try to do things for them in the moment, but it's going to be a long recovery road and the outlook feels a lot more bleak than if we could have done something preventatively. And so my thought process has been what sort of preventative things can and should we do. And... Truman does, I feel like I'm in lecture mode, but Truman does, uh, at the end of this article, give a couple of thoughts. And his first thought, which is exactly what I was going for, is catechesis. He says, teach your kids well, attend a church where your family will sit under the word preached and receive the sacraments, be a loving community as a church, and focus your efforts primarily locally. So he's saying, "Don't, don't try to focus on winning Twitter arguments or things like that, focus on the people that God has actually put you in real relationship with and work on changing those, which is preaching our language, right? And then he says, I suspect Rod Dreher would say that a big part of this is the Benedict option. And interestingly enough, Dreher actually wrote the foreword to the rise and triumph of the modern self. And he was one, he played a key role in encouraging Truman to write this book to begin with. Interestingly, also reading Truman's intro to the book, he spent a year as a fellow at Princeton University learning from Robert George, who is kind of the patron saint of Canavox. I mean, Catholic friends might might not like me using that terminology, but maybe Molly's Uber boss. Uh, yeah, he's he's a professor. He's probably the best known conservative professor in the country. He mentored Ryan Anderson. Actually, was Ted Cruz's thesis advisor uh, at Princeton. Uh, he he's he's a hysterical guy to begin with, but utterly brilliant. And apparently, he also played a huge role in Truman forming his thoughts for this book. Well, the funny part fun. is, like, I'm writing down. Hi, guys. I'm Jay. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> I just want to know who I am to reintroduce myself. Uh, after 40 minutes of Molly or something. Uh, I was writing down notes about... Oh, I'm not about, even done yet. I was writing notes about the show, and I actually wrote cultural expectations, you know, so I can form the, the, the right. description of the show. Cultural expectations and raising our kids and teaching them to live as dissidents. Specifically referring to... To Dreyer. In the good yes. way, yeah. Dreyer's... Um, uh, live not by live lies. Live not by lies. Well, live not by lies... Which I think then gets coupled with his previous book, The Benedict Option, Mm -hmm. which is he was accused of saying opt out of culture like a Benedictine monk where they essentially withdrew Mm -hmm. and let culture go to hell and had this little protective area where they the Benedicts didn't grow, didn't make good beer, did they? Who, Who makes the good beer? Oh, man. I you guys. I studied this. Uh, uh, Trappists. Yeah. So. Belgians, Belgian monks, Belgian monks, Trappist monks. 
but Trappist beer is the best. <laughs> the Belgian ale, right, is the more generic yeah, but, quality. Yeah, uh, yeah. Trappist, so, it's yeah. Now we're back in a genre that Jr. Sorry. is Florence in. No, but but so so yes, absolutely. I I actually started before I knew that Truman would would have a little bit to say about this in his in the end of this article, and I'm sure he does more in the book, but. I probably our culture will Jesus will return by the time I finish this book <laughs> at the rate I'm working through the rise and triumph of the modern self. So I'm trying to form my own what do I do about all of this with my kids and my friends' kids? And I I started writing down, even before Truman used that word, catechizing our kids in this world. And I think that we need to be constantly reinforcing in our kids that there is an objective, unifying meta-narrative of which we are a part. We don't determine our own truth and our own reality. And our feelings are not determinative of our role in reality. And also, this is a thing that's a struggle for me with Canavox because so much of what we call people to in, for example someone who experiences persistent same-sex attraction, what is the greater good of which you can be a part and to which you are called, or even someone who's struggling in a marriage? Do you stay... There are actually very good reasons to stay in a struggling marriage for your own sake. People who are struggling in a marriage and stick with it tend to be happier when they come out on the other side if they stay in their marriage than if they leave their marriage. Married men later in life, like we're, we're approaching later in life, in their 60s and onward, tend to have better physical health and a better financial position if they're married than if they are divorced or if they've always been single. There are exceptions to that rule. I know that we have single people who are either divorced or never married listening to us. There are for sure exceptions to that rule, and I think especially if you're in a solid Christian community. But if you have a guy who's considering leaving his family because he's going to be happier, better off without their burden there's a there's a very compelling this is for your good but there's also this is for the greater good and when we watch a movie i don't know about the movie you just watched but somebody is heroic when they're doing something for someone else oh that's exactly what this movie the was. whole i mean every good the movie, whole character plot in ev- in the great wall was matt was matt damon and his primary co-partner buddy conflicting because Matt was wanting to help these people and his buddy wanted to just take the black powder and run. Yeah. And he wasn't seen as a hero until he did sacrifice. Right. So, so challenge for our readers, listeners who I'm sure agree with me on this, we would be hard pressed to name a movie where someone is seen as heroic or where the movie has a satisfying, happy ending if they have not somehow sacrificed something of themselves for somebody else or for the greater good. Uh, I mean, The Tomorrow War, that's like the latest (laughs) movie, pop culture movie I've watched. The whole point is he lets his daughter die, right? Am I remembering this right? He, she dies in the future to save the, the, you know, the past, which is his present, and then he's able to live a better reality. I don't know. It's hard to describe. You have to watch The Tomorrow War. Anyway, it's just one of a zillion examples. We have to train our kids that there is, there is objectively a greater good and that it's worth putting yourself in the plot of the scriptural narrative of the world and what we believe God is doing in the world and submitting yourself to the God who created that plot of which it is good to not be the central character in that plot. And this is this goes back to the whole, you know, what is the primary purpose of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And then these snarky, anti-Calvinist who think it's a gotcha to be like, well, I'd never worship a selfish God. It doesn't sound very loving to me to be so selfish that you're going to insist on other people (laughs) glorifying you. You know, people do this gotcha. And the point is, you, it's actually ultimately tremendously loving of God 
to insist that we worship him and worship him only because he is the only thing in the universe worth worshiping and worth orienting our lives around. And everything else that we glory in, a beautiful sunset or good food, is derivative of the goodness of God and is derivative of his glory. And we need to see what's good in life as oriented around what is best, i.e. God. I, I just feel this tremendous urgency right now to help our kids embed their lives in that. And even, I, I mean, I don't want to pat ourselves on the back because this isn't necessarily us. I was thinking, would, it, would an interesting, it's not a coincidence of God's providence, would an interesting piece of God's providence that there's been a resurgence in our lifetime Starting before, I, mean, I think Edmund Clowney would be the beginning of, in our generation, appreciating the storyline of scripture as a story and a cohesive plot. And you and I both have said over and over when we're reading the Jesus Storybook Bible with our kids, we grew up with these snippets of we, we've got Noah mm-hmm. and we've got Daniel and we've got David and we've got Jonah, but they don't fit together into a cohesive story of how God is pursuing a people and building a people that he says, you will be my God, you will be, I will be your God and you will be my people. Mm-hmm. And w- having absolutely no idea how, how the garden is related to the cross and how the cross is related to that crazy book of revelation. And so for our kids to grow up having read the Jesus Storybook Bible over and over and having parents who've read it over and over and how that have that embedded in our view of how we read scripture. I think there's no coincidence that we are now at a point in culture where people are so lost, have so lost any sense of plot that they believe that they can and should be writing their own stories. And it doesn't matter if those stories are are not cohesive or coherent because what matters is me and my feelings. So he uses the phrase emotivism that my feelings literally determine my reality and how other people should treat me because that is an actual reality. And, um, yeah. Anyway, (laughs) I just feel I feel this sense of urgency right now to catechize our kids and also to continuously embed in them these truths because it does them no good to let them think that they in any way determine their reality or that that them trying to determine their reality is going to lead to their happiness Hey everybody, JR here again. Um, the good <laughs> I'm, news I'm is... I'm only one paragraph into this list that I have on okay, here. Okay, we're going to have to save the other two for another show. <laughs> like, we're almost at an hour. Um, the good news is, we I don't, I don't feel like we've been failing in... We've been doing our best, as the kids have been raising... We've been raising kids over the last however many years, of catechizing our kids. I agree. You know, and it's... We don't have to play catch up and we've done everything we can. I mean, there's always more you can do. I think my point is, um, you know, I'm trying to think of a metaphor for this. If we, the difference would be us having a sense that there's enemies at the gates. And so we're being vigilant that Mm -hmm. letting down our guard, even in terms of I've been trying to think just in the last day, what shows are we letting our kids watch that are teaching them that you somehow did just this, this worldview that your feelings are paramount, that your feelings are the, are create your sense of personal identity where it's a tremendous gift. I believe to, to understand Jared's yawning at me, you guys. No, no, I'm not yawning. <laughs> no, this I, is the, I'm just going to, I'm going to drop. This is the afternoon slump I get yeah, into. I, 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 in the meanwhile, had a cup of coffee right before you would have. So I you were didn't. ready to come I down should go, I should have tried one of those PBR <laughs> hard coffees. Uh, 
I feel like the coffee and the alcohol sort of would counteract each other. Well, and given my work with kids at judo, I don't. You know, I, don't, I, mean. I like to drink during the before judo. So. Um, no, I. My last thing to say is, right now. Besides the importance of cultivating relationships with our kids, for friends who share that worldview and aren't going to be undermining what we're doing at home, is is to believe that it that your identity comes from God, that you have cues from nature and from Scripture that can help you to an authentic self that isn't somehow oppressive, but that is living in in line with how you were created by a God who loves you and who made you unique and who made you in his image. And that image gives you unique dignity that distinguishes you from animals that, that isn't, it, you don't have to create dignity by changing genders to catch attention, which, in order to fit in or to flee something that you're afraid of or that psychologically trauma has made you not like about yourself or want to hide from, but that God has given you everything that you need for life and godliness by his word and by his spirit. And, um... I don't know. I Obviously, we get to spend a whole lifetime unpacking this with the kids. But going back to your point, yes, I think that we've been working at this with our kids in how we live. But I've, I'm becoming more mindful of this because of the bringing together Dreyer readings and listenings and talkings that we've been doing, the rise and triumph of the modern self, and then haven't even gotten into you are what you love but maybe I'll read some more of that and can discuss it the the point of his book is that the habits that we do not just spiritually but in everything that we do actually impact our spiritual formation and our kids' spiritual formation in the in ways that we don't recognize so mm-hmm. even I'll just drop this hint and then I will actually Shut up. Gosh, I had other things to talk about today. You shouldn't you should either have more coffee or shouldn't have any coffee before a show. Right. I don't think more coffee would be a good thing. Uh James K.A. Smith in You Are What You Love talks about how the architecture of churches, of modern churches, has shifted from a Reformation word and sacrament are architecturally central. So you're everything in you experiences the centrality of the word and of the sacrament when you enter a Reformation church. Uh, modern churches are architecturally designed more like a shopping mall than a center centered on the word and the sacrament church. And so everything in you, you walk in and in your brain, you're going, I'm going to church. But subconsciously, everything else in you says, I'm here to be a consumer. So that's part of how can we train the habits of our kids and the habits of our homes to feel like we're in wartime. This is not a time of peace. This is a time of war where we need to be constantly vigilant in how we train our kids. Last thing I'm going to say. I have a conflict, you guys, in what version to have my children memorize scripture in. And this conflict has been stewing because our kids are memorizing scripture for for Sunday school and they're doing it in the 1984 NIV, which is what I memorized. My mom, actually, when I went to Awana, she would tape NIV verses over the New King James of my Awana book, which I tremendous, I was very embarrassed of. I don't think I've ever told her this. I was very embarrassed of as a kid because I've got literally handwritten or printed out and taped over Bible verses in my little Awana book didn't stop me from filling my crown with jewels. And if you're an Awana kid from the 1980s, you'll know what I mean. I had a crown. I had multiple crowns full of jewels. I appreciate now that most of my Bible memory has been in the 1984 NIV, which you can't find anymore. They've phased it out even online. Our kids own ESV Bibles. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I look it up online because this is where we're at in our curriculum in Bible memory right now. I don't like the 
the modern NIV because therefore I urge you in view of God, God's mercies, therefore brothers, I urge you in view of God's mercies to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. That's Romans 12, 1, 1994 NIV. ESV Romans 12, 1 is super confusing. It's not an easy thing to memorize, which is true for most ESV things that my kids are memorizing right now. But I don't like the modern NIV, which says brothers and sisters, just because that's not actually what the text says. Anyway, I'm curious if anybody else out there has struggled, not even with your kids, with yourself. I know, JR, you've struggled with choosing which version to memorize things in. I'm curious if anybody else has struggled with this and what your conclusions have been and why. Um... Well, I'll share mine since we're waiting for listeners to respond. Um, I grew up memorizing everything in New King James as well. Um, I think Awana for that. Uh, so I continued with New King James through high school. And it wasn't until college that I switched over to NASB. And then at which point after that, I happened to know people who were on editorial for the ESV. So I had one of the pre, uh, when I was at Moody, I had a pre, uh, pre-publication copy, review copy of the ESV that I used. And um, unfortunately, you guys, I kind of just quit memorizing scripture. I've started up again because I'm trying to motivate the kids, um, kind of like I do well sits. There are passages that I feel I need to commit that are particularly impactful at some certain point in time. Um, and so I, I tend to spend time committing to those. And when I do, it's in the ESV. Uh, but frankly, thanks to Awana and even in large part, actually, no, I take, I take some of that back that I just said. Um, I started memorizing a ton in NASB at word of life. So between Awana in NASB, or one on Word of Life, I, I can generally and adequately share the gospel or speak into most people's lives with a pretty good idea of what scripture says. And nobody's fact-checking your what, what version and how accurate your version is. No, not even I, kind of. In fact, in fact, most of the time, um, the stuff I've been incur- lately, I've found myself when I've been talking, I mean, I just had a long conversation with a friend at the cabin about all sorts of things. And then again, on telegram here just recently about the Matthew passage store for yourselves, treasures in heaven. Most of my, most of my exhortation to friends and family um, come from a cumulative understanding of said scripture and not a single specific passage. Understanding the, and so maybe that's, this is a different conversation, but maybe that goes into the, the whole, uh, what did one of my professors call it? Placitis, where they ripped a verse screaming and bleeding from its context and hung it on the wall. Mm-hmm. This is my life verse. Um, and it goes, you know, maybe that's also in line with your concept of, or your discussion earlier about the, Bible being an entire story, you know, we, is there an overemphasis on memorizing a single verse? Is there an overemphasis on, you know, on, on just the whole one single verse thing rather than the context so and the passage involved? So are kids should be memorizing involved? chapters and not verses? <clears throat> I don't, I, I, I don't think there's an overemphasis on memorizing no, single I was, verse. No, I'm using, I mean, I mean, look at, you know. I mean, if you're if you're missing the forest for the trees, yes, yeah, yeah. but it should be a both and. We we're specifically encouraged to hide God's word in our heart, and I think that having specific words of scripture in our brains is what the the second I'm not, part of I'm not making your, I'm not I've hidden your word in my heart, so I might not sin against you. I think there's specific words from God's inspired. Yes. Word I am that not we need making an argument. I'm not making an argument to not memorize scripture. You're an antinomian. Oh my gosh. You need to not have coffee. I'm going to turn <laughs> off the coffee maker. <laughs> no, I think I'm 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 more or less I'm arguing for a balance. Not 
putting all of your emphasis into memorizing a single passage, but also putting equal emphasis into understanding the context and the passages with which it's in. What yes. is Christ? Te- what is going on there? What is the whole? What is the concept here in this verse? And what is that? How does that flow throughout, like the New Testament, or where is it shown in the Old Testament, or whatever the case may I be? I think that also, I mean, you're you're making the point with the Romans twelve one because I asked the kids if they knew what therefore means. Because as you guys know, Romans 12, 1, therefore, is yeah. the hinge point of all of Romans. And none of them knew what therefore meant or the significance of it. And we've been memorizing Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 5.8, Romans 8.28. And now we're all at Romans 12. Well, but they tell they tell the story. Oh, for sure. Right? All, we're all sinners. We fall short of the glory of God. We deserve death. But God demonstrates. His own and then love God, towards us and that we were yet sinners. Christ died right, for us. Right. And then Romans 8.28 for those who love God, all things work together for good. So we've got this whole story, this theological foundation that Paul's putting together. I'm teaching this to the kids. I'm assuming that you guys who are listening know this. And I get to the therefore, and the kids totally zone me out because I'd already been talking for too long. And then I get all mixed up because of versions, and I have this version crisis in the middle of trying to lecture them about the significance <laughs> of the therefore in Romans 12.1. So, but... But going, this is my my final point, and then we can lay this episode to rest. My final point is I don't have to teach it to them all right now because all of this, the catechizing our kids, the working on the worldview, the you don't just say Psalm 139, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. Therefore, you're not a girl trapped in a boy's body. God made you perfectly. Be happy with that. You know, you can't fix someone who's got that level of brokenness because they're just because of all the things that Truman is building and you can't fix that with a verse from Psalm 139, you, this is a lifelong thing and we need to be vigilant about it because this is wartime. And one of the blessings of us raising our kids right now is it's always wartime. Satan hasn't rested since the garden. And yet I think that sometimes it feels less like wartime than it does in our current cultural moment. And so we, we're we being reminded we can't rest. We keep teaching our kids the whole story of all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but God, and therefore in view of God's mercies. And you're done. Because if we take any more time... <laughs> we're going to have to split we're gonna this be late, part We're going to be late two. for judo. The kids aren't going to get fed. And it's just going to be, you know, everything else. Okay, so uh, my lips are th- sealed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not saying anything else. You just finish, did. Finish, it, finish it up. <laughs> oh man! If you guys like what you heard, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can do so on our website via the via the postcard option toobusytoflush.com or tb the number two f.com. You can also join us on Telegram. There is an invite link to our chat group in the show notes. In addition to that link, I'll have links to the four works of nonfiction that Molly referenced in today's show, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, You Are What You Love, The Benedict Option, and Live Not by Lies. And if you'd like to order a t-shirt, Christmas is coming. Coffee mugs, t-shirts, hats, anything else, you can do so on our website as well in the Swag Shack. Molly handed me something, and I'll include that on the show, too. I don't know what it is. It's, it's the Modern Reformation summary. Uh, it's Truman's a Modern book. Reformation I wasn't going to say anything, but you didn't get what I was trying to communicate. Ah, well, <laughs> there you go, friends. You can also send us an email at tb2f at pm.me, uh, or you can send me a text at 406-318-7136. Other than that, I think that's all I have. I minted my first NFT Today I'll send every I'll send it out to everybody. So for four hundred and fifty eight dollars, you can buy one of my limited edition, only copies in existence, music singles. And you guys, the NFT economy with cryptocurrency is super weird. That's a really really low price for anything. Really low. Most stuff is like half of an Ethereum. And if you know what Ethereum's running right now, you know it's a two thousand dollar equivalent. So like stuff is really weird out there, kids. So hang on to your hats. Teach your kids. Catechize them. And uh, go have fun with life. That's all I've got. Me too. I gotta go make tacos.